Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me. Dead leg. What's up with it? You holding it together okay? I'm trying to hold together with it. You know, kids and all that stuff. Hey, GP, what do mm. we... I got a question for you here, because I've, I've mm-hmm. heard from a few listeners here. I'm wondering, you know, it's been, what, eight days since we last talked. We've had a little bit of news here and there. You know, college football, hey, and basketball, we can have guys resume to campus. Maybe we'll get into that. But what are you thinking? Before we get into what we're going to talk about, I want you to tell me, what do you have on the docket today? Because there might be one particular topic that you might have overlooked. And out of allegiance to our listenership, I want to make sure that we hit on this. So you're asking me what do I have planned to talk about on this podcast? That's correct. And just so people are aware, I don't I don't yet know what you have assembled. So yeah, why don't you lay it on me here? Okay, well, I was going to uh, start with the NCAA Division One Council. As you referenced, voted earlier this week to allow student-athletes in football, men's basketball, women's basketball to return to campus for voluntary workouts starting on June 1st. So we'll get into that. And then I've got uh, one of the things the Division One Council didn't do is um, – you vote on the one-time transfer waiver. They basically kick that into January. So it's going to have no impact on the 2020-21 season. And then Houston lost a important player, Nate Hinton. And though I don't think there's some big national audience for uh, Nate Hinton entering the NBA draft for good breakdown, it is interesting that for the second consecutive year, Kelvin Sampson is losing an important player to the NBA draft, who almost certainly is not going to be selected in the NBA draft. I figured we could get a few minutes out of that. Yeah, that's what I was worried about there. I mean, you've you've overlooked, I think, the biggest story of the week. Hmm. Hmm. How, how, how could you do this? You know what Booth Gosh means to this podcast. <laughs> he's, uh, he's in the transfer portal. Yeah, the, the player formerly referenced as Both Gosh, both Gash, but it is Booth Gosh, right? I still don't know 100%. I don't know. Utah. I stopped caring. caring. Once they they shut the season down, I stopped caring about how to pronounce people's names. Utah's, uh, I don't know if I'd call him a star guard. He's a star to us and uh, was randomly brought up unexpectedly on a podcast in December, and then he went out and balled out against Kentucky in advance of the CBS Sports Classic. Um, He's in the transfer portal, average 10.7 points, 3.6 rebounds, 2.9 assists. I've heard from, I'm not exaggerating, GP, I've heard from at least half a dozen people that asked if we were going to address the transfer situation of one uh, Booth Gosh on the podcast, and I said, listen, I will make sure it happens, and in fact, I will make sure I hijack the start of the podcast with this news here, because we should be the home for all Booth Gosh transfer news. He's got a litany of of supporters and 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 quarters, if you will. Minnesota, Nevada, BYU, BYU, BYU. By the way, is is involved, I think, with every single transfer. <laughs> I'm not right. even exactly like every like every single one. I see a list come out, and BYU's on the list. Shouts to Mark Pope. He's getting it done, and apparently uh, they've got. Uh, 
<laughs> a scholarship limit of 700 there. Uh, but uh, but Gosh also has Texas A&M, Texas Tech, DePaul, Xavier, Illinois, Creighton, Vanderbilt, Georgetown, Oregon. He's actually a fairly solid player. We will keep an eye on this, okay? All right, he's no Devin Downey. I get all that. But uh, but both Gosh, he's he's out there, and uh, he's certainly on the market, and the people wanted us to, to address it. So do you have any thoughts on this, or do you want to just move on? I have no real thoughts on it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm assuming he'll go somewhere and then have to sit out a year, and then he'll play in the 2021-22 season. Uh, I, I wish him all the luck in the world. I guess I, I, don't, uh, I don't. I don't. I don't care. I stopped caring. I'm over. I'm. I'm. I stopped caring about things. I am kind of there with you, man. In fact, as we can uh, kind of get into the transfer stuff later on this podcast, um, the reality of all this is uh, that. And we've mentioned this before. When you really get down to it, uh, you know there are maybe ten transfers a year that actually matter. Uh, that right. are both big names are going to go to a spot and wind up putting up big numbers and have a real impact on their team, getting not just into the NCAA tournament but having a a really solid seed or even making a Sweet 16, Elite Eight, Final Four run. So uh, while coaches and certainly I think fans can get caught up in a little bit of it, a lot of these guys just don't matter. It just is what it is. They, it, don't, it's, they it's, don't matter. It's just the reality of it. So, uh, but to me, Booth Gosh does matter, and to our listeners, he does as well. So. Um, Thanks for entertaining that off the top there. No, but, yeah. no uh, for sure. To be clear, like uh, somebody's going to get him, and two years from now, he is going to matter I, as long as he picks the, the right school and right. He, he's a he's a, a, at a relevant program or uh, uh, on a relevant team uh, in that particular year. But that's why I don't get caught up in the transfer numbers. Like, there's now 900 people transfer. Like, I don't care. Like, 99% of them don't matter. They're guys who averaged two points per game last season somewhere. Uh, like, and I listen, all the other people who uh, have jobs in the sport, if they want to live and die with where every single transfer is looking at going, like knock yourself out. It, like, I don't, I don't tell other people how to do their jobs. I just personally, I'm not even going to fake it. I just don't care. <laughs> I'm mostly there with you. There's occasionally an interesting one and there's still like Mac McClung, who's the most high. I think McClung, sure, is, he's probably like the most high profile. Like he's a, he's a player who matters. There's no doubt about it. Uh, that stuff is newsworthy. He's down to seven. And when he picks his school, we'll talk about him on the podcast and all that. BYU involved in Mac McClung, by the way. Sure. No, no doubt about no, it, but for um, the most part, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I will say that it will matter more when the one-time transfer waiver does become a thing mm-hmm. because then we'd have a situation where Mac McClung is picking a school and we know, oh, wow, he's going to play for that school in a few months. Um, and he still might. Like, he'll apply for a waiver like everybody else. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he won't. But largely what we're looking at here are sit-out transfers who won't have anything to do with in the sport with the sport again until November 2001, and so that's well, why I don't get well. <laughs> 20, 2021, you're 20 years say. behind on that, <laughs> but I, you know, actually, actually, did you? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because we have talked about parallel worlds theory on this podcast. Well, I talked about it. You didn't know what was going on there, but there is actually some researchers in Antarctica who are thinking that there might be a a parallel world where time moves backward. Uh, did you see the story? I, I actually did see this story. Yeah, so, and I thought of our conversation, and I would, if given a choice, I'd like to join that world <laughs> where it's all going backward. Fascinating yes. deal, by the way. Totally fascinating. And maybe yes, in that world, uh, when we get to 2001, those players actually <laughs> might matter. You might be correct about that. Right. I obviously meant November 2021. So, like, uh, let, let, let's. 
it, it, like most of the transfers now, we won't once they pick a school, we won't talk or think about them again until November 2021. And so it just seems like a million years away. So I don't I don't think that much about it. <laughs> I uh, I'm with you. Um, well, we do have, you know. I'd say significant developments in the world of college athletics here. So you can lay it out for listeners, plenty of whom I'm sure are aware of it. But uh, let's give uh, the people the the latest on what I think is probably one of the more significant headlines. I don't know how much it means, but nevertheless, I think we, we had some sort of progress or at least the appearance of progress this week. Yeah, the NCAA Division I Council voted to allow student-athletes in football, men's basketball, and women's basketball to return to their campuses for voluntary workouts on June 1st. Now, uh, state governments, local governments, conference officials, university officials still going to have to give the okay, and they definitely will in some places. They likely won't in others, but either way, the NCAA will be out of the way on June 1st. Like right now, even if your school was cool with you being in your basketball practice facility, it's not allowed mm-hmm. per NCAA rules. That changes on June 1st. And so I do think it's like it's a small thing, but it is a thing. It's a step forward. And I guess I'd ask you this. Does it make you optimistic that college basketball is actually going to start on November 10th? Or does it not mean anything to you at all? Uh, this doesn't mean anything to me at all in regard to that. In fact, but I... My brother, who one of his best friends, um, I think has postponed his wedding and therefore has postponed his bachelor party. And they had previously, I think, planned something for the summer, but now they want to have it for next March, basically. Like, like they want to do something and, and have it uh, run concurrent to the NCAA tournament. He texted me on Wednesday and said, chances that there are a college basketball, that there's a college basketball season. And I said, well, 100%, that's going to happen. There will be a season. Um, but I said, if you, you know, chances that the season goes off as scheduled without any sort of delays, I said, uh, 50%, you know, I, I don't know. And I can't tell you with 100% certainty that the NCAA tournament will happen in March. I can't say that at all. Um, this is a nice step. It's bigger for college football because, again, as we mentioned on last week's podcast, college basketball now has the it, it got the worst of it by having its biggest event canceled and now gets the benefit of having to wait the longest until its season starts. Um, so this means a lot more for college football, which is running on a much different timeline here. And college sports in general, I think, are operating under different rules for the most part than professional leagues uh, for obvious reasons that you understand and that we've touched on with the podcast before. Um, this is a small step, but... Uh, I hope it's a good thing. You know, again, I, I feel like on a daily basis here, we are get, we we have a lot of optimism and hope as a country. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at the polls, uh, when you see released uh, via news organizations of, of how people feel about wearing masks or how people f- feel about worrying about a second surge, I think a lot of it actually is fairly uh, pragmatic. I think a lot of people do have their feet on the ground uh, and not and don't have their heads in the sand when it comes to all this. Um, so this is nice, Parrish. Uh, but it still has not addressed the bigger questions of uh, with college football specifically when they're going to be able to ramp up practices to the level that they want to uh, to be able to pull off games. Um, we don't have to slip completely down the COVID-19 uh, slide again on this podcast. But, you know, I did see things earlier this week, uh, even, you know, NCAA's uh, Brian Hanline, who is one of the leading voices in terms of its COVID-19 task force. When you get into the actual specifics here, 
of if you're going to be able to pull this off and have a team uh, be able to practice regularly, have have games, have performances, the amount of tests that are needed, and the amount of finances that will go into having needing those tests, and then when you look at all these universities being cash strapped to begin with, now, you know, I think those are going to be challenges that will be more obviously known and discussed when we get to maybe the middle of June or the uh, the beginning of July here. Just the amount of like. You need to test people so frequently, and they're not free. You know, this stuff costs money, and, and football uh, players and programs in particular, there's so much that goes into that um, that I think basketball, you know what, if you want to get three, four, six guys up in a gym here and there, get some shots up, get in a weight room, I think it's good for college basketball because they can do this. The numbers are smaller, and I think it's uh, it's a good thing for them and for coaches who are obviously aching for it. So I do think it's – it's good news probably all around, but I think it's more beneficial for basketball because the pure numbers of the sport allow it to kind of inch its way back into some sense of normalcy with all this. Well, hopefully for, for the summer, GP, we'll continue to see the numbers trend down nationally, hopefully in terms of the number of positive tests, despite the fact that testing still seems to be uh, relatively widespread and the numbers are going up, and that's a good thing. Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm still of the mindset that it's just a little too early to know exactly what our country is going to look like um, on November 10th. Um, you know, th- there was some inc- there's clearly been some encouraging news in recent weeks, like the country, large parts of it are starting to open up and, um, you know, deaths aren't s- spiking the way some people assume they might. Uh, positive tests aren't spiking some people the way some people assume they might. But then, you know, I read a story this morning, you know, Georgia has been held up as this as this place where, hey, everybody thought they were crazy for opening early. And now, look, everything seems to be fine. Well, the story this morning I read says they've been cooking the books on the numbers like the, the they're 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 using antibodies test and counting them as tests. It's uh, the one quote from a uh, expert was like they're. They're 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 t- comparing apples and oranges and calling them all oranges. Like it's not. It's mm. just not what it appears to be. So, you know, who knows? I I, I want to be optimistic because what's the point of being the other way? But I just still think it's it's too early to tell. And what I'll be interested to find out is when somebody actually at the collegiate level comes up with some details, like a plan. Like tell me how you're going to do this. Everybody likes to tell you what they're going to do. They don't tell you how you're going to do it. Like at least in Major League Baseball, they're arguing over money right now, but they've got a plan in place. You know, they here's what here's how we're going to test. Here's what we're going to do when there's a positive test. Like they, they have a plan in place. Whether it works or not, I don't know. But they have a plan in place. With college athletics, there's no plan because there's no single voice leading football or men's basketball. It's basically conference commissioners out doing whatever they think is going to be best for them and, and their institutions. And within conferences, people don't even know like how it's going to work. Um, in, in the Big Ten, there's a good chance, I guess, Ohio State's ready to play football in, uh, in, in September. Um, it, is Rutgers going to be ready to play football in September? I mean, I don't know. And so these are big questions. And you mentioned the testing it's interesting because one of the things I have been told is that the NCAA is not going to get involved in how you have to test and what you must do. They're going to leave that up to campus officials and universities are going to handle this differently because, as you point out, this stuff isn't free. It's a, uh, what I've read is that it's about $100 a test yeah. is, what, is, is what it's going to cost these athletic departments. And so 
I saw Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby yesterday say that he, after his conversations with um, experts, it's that they believe their football players need to be tested every two or three days. So let's just take it. Let's just take it at three. Let's okay? do that. Okay. Let's do, hold on. Let's do the math on this. Let's just say three. Okay. Okay. How many okay, so and how many how many people do you want to say are are, are a part of a, puff, a football program that would need to be tested? GP. What is a conservative say, uh, estimate? So one twenty-five. Hundred twenty-five. Okay. And when do you want to start the testing? Well, they say they're going to be back on campus June first. I'd want to start at June first. <sighs> Okay. Uh, okay, let's just go. Let's say let's say practice football practice starts July fifteenth. So okay. let's start there. And and then and then let's let's say July fifteenth. So let's just do eight weeks, okay? Okay, eight times. Well, no, let's do let's do July fifteenth through de- December fifteenth because that's a bowl game basically. All right, let's say twenty four weeks. So, so let's just no, let's go five months. Five months. Okay. Okay. And so twenty weeks. Every every three days, it's not. Forget the weeks for a second. Okay. Every every three days is going to be ten times a month. Five months is going to be 50, 50, 50 players are going to be tested fifty times in those five months. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so we're we're doing one hundred and twenty five people connected to the football program times fifty. Love it. That's six thousand two hundred fifty times one hundred. I mean, we just spent we just spent six hundred twenty five thousand dollars. Now that's that's okay, and that's if everything goes that's, well. And that's one team. Yeah, that's one team. That's a football team. Six hundred twenty five thousand dollars. Now, um, what what happens when somebody tests positive? Because what Major League Baseball, NBA, everybody else says is, if somebody tests positive, we've got to immediately contact trace and 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 test. You know everybody. Well, in a football locker room, that's basically everybody. So if you've got to test one hundred and twenty five people. At $100 a test, every single time somebody tests positive, that's another $12,500 every time. This stuff gets expensive, and it's why schools are going to handle it differently. Um, in fact, uh, I, I read this this morning. The University of Memphis football program, they don't have the same kind of money that Oklahoma has or that uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, Tennessee has or Alabama has. So they, they can't afford to do that. They can't afford, afford to spend $600. Oh, and think about it in this way as well. Okay. It, it, uh, I'll just, I'll just, you know, at, at some schools, the attendance isn't that big of a deal because they got so much money from media rights and power five conferences, but at a place outside of the power five structure, like your football fans matter, you use that money to you use ticket sales to pay bills. Well, suddenly, uh, again, I'm, I'm only bringing up Memphis because it's the story I literally read this morning. You know, they might average 45,000 people in a, for a football game. Okay. Now, because of uh, a capacity reduction, for social distancing, what if you can only allow 13,000 people into the Liberty Bowl? Like you lose all of that revenue, but now you've got a new bill of $625,000. So here's what Memphis is going to do. They say they, they're not going to test every player every three days. They can't afford to do it. So what they will do is take, if I understand it correctly, take a group of 10, get blood if it's blood, whatever it is. They, they'll, they'll test all 10 of them. They'll, they'll group Let's just say it's a blood sample. I don't even know if it is. But they'll group – whatever the sample is, they'll put it all together, uh-huh. 10 people, and then they'll test that sample. And if it comes back clean, they know all 10 people are clean. If it comes back dirty or positive, then they'll test those players individually to see which one has it, how many have it. But the, you know, the testing policies at places outside of the power structure 
are going to be vastly different than the testing policies would, would, at schools inside of the power structure. And it's just going to be interesting to – I guess here would be my question. What happens when? Nobody has answered that yet. What happens when the inevitable happens, which is that you have positive tests with your football program, you have positive tests with your basketball program? Let's just say Champions Classics November 10th, all right? Um, it's Duke against Michigan State. It's Kansas against Kentucky. Night afternoon, let's give it time. Let's not try to make it like afternoon before the game. Afternoon, day before the game. Three Kansas players test positive. Okay, they're pulled clearly, but is Kansas's team okay to play tomorrow? Right. What happens if Kentucky says we don't want to put our student athletes on the court with a basketball team that just had three players test positive? Because one of the things we do know about COVID nineteen is that. When you f first get it, it doesn't necessarily show up in the test immediately. Like it has to work its way to get to a level to, to, to where it actually shows up in a test. So if you've got three Kentucky, uh, uh, Kansas players, whatever, the, however I'm doing this, three players test positive day before a game, you can, you can test the rest of the team and get nothing but negatives. But it doesn't necessarily mean they really aren't carrying the virus at that moment. It just might not be showing up yet. What do you do? How do you handle that situation? That's, those, are, those are the questions that are eventually going to have to be answered. And given that there's not a singular voice in the sport that's going to make these decisions, it just becomes real problematic. It does. And that doesn't even take into the possibility that some of these players might just not be comfortable playing or involving themselves to begin with here. I mean, you have obvious, li obvious liability issues as well. We have already seen, and this wouldn't surprise, like right now the plan now with a lot of major universities is that they plan on opening their campuses, how they are going to actually handle in-classroom instruction, I think remains to be seen and will be different on a on a school-by-school -school basis here. But then you'll have schools just, the th Thanksgiving will come and school will be out you know, campus will be closed in effect uh, until whenever it can resume in, in mid to late January, I guess. And we hope that a surge doesn't happen again and we don't look up in, a, in what is now nine months from now, eight months from now, and see uh, another huge wave coming. We'll see. We'll see where our world is at that point and what kind of testing and medication and uh, where we are with vaccine development, let alone vaccine dissemination throughout the entire world here. Um, so I think about the players when it comes to all this. Um, Dan Walken of USA Today wrote earlier this week that now is actually the time for the players to uh, exact the power that they have over the sport and simply collectively decide to hold out until they can truly unionize. That is uh, a potentially very uh, intelligent idea that is so ridiculously hard to... Who, uh, to actually bring into reality here. So I don't think that that is going to happen there, but uh, it does tap into something that uh, I think could have some real power here, and that's if you have players speaking on not just behalf of themselves, uh, but potentially behalf, uh, on behalf of uh, the coaches that they're close with, the family members uh, that they could have living nearby who could be potentially compromised with all this. Because eventually what's going to happen here is the desire to be able to make money at the, in the college space um, will work as a microcosm as, as to the issues we've seen spreading throughout this country over the past month, and that is that we need to get the economy going again. Uh, because when you hit a certain level of, of unemployment across the board, when you look at people that have um, quarantine fatigue, when you look at the, the fallouts with other uh, 
you know, health issues that are going to come down the line because people aren't active, they're eating terribly, they're depressed, you have mental health issues, all this stuff. There's a lot that you have to take into that. And so I think eventually the college powers that be are just going to be like, you know what, the, the, uh, the statistics show that if you are, you know, between the ages of 18 and 24, whatever you want to uh, say there, uh, you know, the survival rate is just, it's 99.99% exactly, right? Uh, but the problem is if you have one that doesn't, the problem is if you have others that get infected who then do die. Like, it is a disaster if you have uh, uh, an asymptomatic case pass along this to a coach or anyone in administration, and then they get really, really sick, or God forbid they actually die from it. That's the that's the absolute worst here. And it's basically why the leagues have halted the way they have, because you are trying to protect against uh something that's frankly a nightmare on that but i do think that eventually like just you're going to have regions of this country that just are just going to chance it they're going to say f it we don't care and i think uh because of that i think everyone else is just waiting for that one group to be the first and i'm talking that in terms of professional leagues as much as college i think college in the football space you will see the sec be the the league that uh, is the one that barric- that pushes through on this, on any kind of potential barricades, if you will, GP. And in basketball, uh, I think it's just, I think it's a, a little bit different there um, because it can wait on co- college football overall. But yeah, there's a there's a ton of questions that we still have to have answered. In one way, I do feel like, hey, we're good to open up our athletic facilities on June 1st. I'm of a split mind with this. Part of me is like, wow, this is actually suddenly kind of happening fairly fast here. Um, but a, another part of me says, you know what, the people at these universities, although the virus is going to do what it's going to do, um, and it's now become a cliche that we're working on this timeline, although that is very true, um, it does feel like the university athletics you know, environment there might be on the whole, just a better place mentally, physically, and for the health of the players than maybe they otherwise would be sub- subject to at their houses. So um, I don't know. I think it'll start well, but I, I, I just, I, I still don't know where we're going to be in September, GP. There's so it, it's a fascinating situation, and um, I think we can't mistake the advancement of time and quarantine fatigue with like. Okay, it's been long enough. We can just kind of ease ourselves back into this, and we won't have. No, that's we're gonna. We've passed a hundred thousand deaths in this country because of this, and the number's still gonna rise. Is it lower than what the doomsday scenarios had said before? Yes, but that's because we took these drastic measures on all of this stuff. So I worry just a little bit about putting our collective guard down when you see the people that are like refusing to wear masks in stores and this complete idiocy there that we might look up in four to six months and say, you know, if we had just been a little more cautious and waited just a little bit while longer, we could have really helped our situation. I'll close with this GP. I know I'm, I'm really going long here, but uh, there was even a report that came out that's that came out, a national report that came out within the past 12 hours that said, if we had simply enacted stay-at-home quarantine orders and, and had done social distancing seven days earlier than what we did in this country, the number of deaths would be right now in the 20,000s as opposed to knocking on the door of 100,000. And I think that we might be in danger of repeating some of those things uh, by being willing to ease a lot of this stuff, uh, not just because we are... Uh, just eager to get out of our houses. We all are. Um, but thinking that, okay, well, the worst of coronavirus has come and passed, and now whatever happens here is kind of residual. That might not actually be the case. Well, to circle back to 
whether it's too or June first is too early or perfect or, or not early enough to open facilities for student athletes in those three sports: football, men's basketball, women's basketball. To return, the argument in favor of that is um, a we we got to do this at some point if we're actually planning on having football season and basketball season. And B, in lots of these um, states, local gyms are open now. And so we'd rather have our student athletes in our facilities monitored um, rather than, you know, just mixing it up at the local right. gym. You know, like like where I live, the gyms are open. My, like my oldest son has a membership to a local gym. We haven't allowed him to go yet, but it's open. He can go, you know, like he's allowed to be there. We, we you know, we're still holding off on that. But just trust me, where I live, which is in the heart of the SEC, um, I'm in the minority. Like pe- people here do not care anymore. It's like, hey, um, you know, I don't know anybody who's died. Uh, I'm ready to I'm ready to live my life. Like I went to the store last night. I'd say. Five percent of the people were wearing masks. Five. I mean, like almost nobody. And so, I am hopeful that all of this goes well. I am also skeptical that it will go well, and I am anxious. And then we'll move on to get to a place where people are actually answering these very obvious and big questions. What are like? You cannot go into this, and I don't think they will. But you cannot go into this assuming it's going to go smoothly. You have to have plans in place for when it doesn't. And you you can act like these are just big, scary hypotheticals. I know that's what some people think. But like I, that column I wrote last week is going to be recirculated later on in this calendar year. What are we mm. going to do with Jim Behan? What are we going to do with Roy Williams? What are we going to do? With, that's going to be something people have to address. That, those men will have to answer those questions at some point because there's not a medical official that's going to advise them to be in a locker room with a, with a bunch of basketball players who are bouncing around campus. That's going to be something that has to be addressed. And these are things that are going to have to be addressed. You're going to have to tell uh, me, us, uh, you know, you you got to have a plan in place. What happens when when three players test positive the day before a game? Like what what happens when – uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, Michigan is scheduled to play uh, Florida in Ann Arbor, and I'm just making things up at this point, but it doesn't matter. And uh, four Florida players test positive, and Michigan says we don't. Not only do we not want to play you, we don't even want you coming to our state and bringing a possibly infected basketball team. Like, just what are you going to do when these things happen? Because these things are going to happen. It is ridiculous to think that. Outbreaks are not going to happen on college campuses when you get 20,000 people circulating in a, in, on a campus and that those outbreaks aren't going to hit the very student athletes we're talking about right now. Like if you think it's not going to be a real thing, you're living in a fantasy world. And so what are we going to do when these things happen? Nobody in college athletics has, has submitted great ideas yet. And, you know, eventually they're going to have to, um, you know, so, so, so we'll see. Um, Let's move on to another topic that was handled in the Division One Council or not handled. They did not vote on the one-time transfer waiver. Now, uh, initially, it was supposed to happen on May 20th. That was always the date. We'll find out on May 20th if you know Landers Nolly or Mac McClung or any of these transfers are going to be able to play immediately. Uh, the vote 
then the board of directors came out and said they weren't recommending any changes at this time. And at that point, they, the board of uh, the division one council just decided, well, we're not going to vote on it at all. We'll just kick it down the road and we will handle it. Um, the NCAA will hand it, handle it in a more formal way in January 2021. And, uh, that's fine, I, I guess. Like I wrote a couple of days ago, you know, they, they seem to be using the pandemic as cover to, you know, it's hard for anybody to be outraged about a transfer waiver in the middle of a national health and financial crisis. So, like, I'm not screaming, but I will say you still get one coach after another or one reporter after another trying to argue that this shouldn't be done now or in January 2021. And I just I, – I can't for the life of me understand the the argument against it. Like once you tell me soccer players mm. can transfer and play immediately, it, it, you, it, every argument you have for why basketball players shouldn't be allowed to do it goes completely out the window. The idea that this rule is in place holding players, student athletes in different sports to different standards is by definition unfair. And so when I was talking to people over the past few days, they were – People who support the transfer waiver, I, I guess they, they – what I mostly heard was two things. One, they were upset, frustrated that it didn't happen on May 20th, but still optimistic that it will happen in January 2021. That um, in time for the 2021-22 academic year, student athletes in basketball, football, and ice hockey and baseball – will be allowed, like all other student athletes on college campuses, to transfer one time and play immediately. No waiver necessary. Yeah, this should be now, but I'm not – all right. So this is this is what I thought was going to happen. I th- Initially, I'm talking like six to ten months ago, uh, I thought that this was going to be broached, and then they were going to do what they always do at the NCAA legislative level, uh, say, okay, here's the plan. Now we are going to enact it. A year from now. Now, coaches and athletic directors that I spoke with in January, February, and March, were, and even into early April, were persuaded to the idea that this was then going to change. This was going to be an exception to that and that it was going to be enacted for immediacy uh, so that anyone that transferred in 2020 was going to be able to play come fall the start of the fall slash winter seasons there. Then coronavirus hits, and maybe that, I don't know if it complicates it, so to speak, but what you might have is a complication on top of a complication here because you were going to have the NCAA inundated with transfer waiver requests. And I can't say with any conviction that it's going to be the way it was or if it'll change because of, of what's happened here, and I don't know. I, I, I would think I would lean toward every transfer who, whether they did it knowing they were going to have to sit a year or thought they weren't going to have to, um, barring a scenario in which they can prove legitimacy over why they're transferring, I just don't think that that's going to happen. I think they're going to wind up sitting this year, and then the ones that want to transfer next year – those are going to be that's going to be the first wave that actually benefits from that and i i would think that it should be in place now coaches some of them would certainly disagree with that uh given a lot of the uncertainties with plenty like this ties into like coaches that have players that are technically declared they think they're coming back some really don't know one way or the other you're trying to figure out your roster situation now the NCAA deadline has been indefinitely postponed to correspond with whenever the combine may or may not happen because the draft 
You and I both know, GP, it's going to get pushed back. It's just a matter of when it gets formally announced that that's going to be the case. People that think that's going to be happening in mid to late August, if not around Labor Day with the draft. And so that impacts college rosters as well. So I think those factors are why this got pushed back. And I do understand that. But I would have been in favor of getting this, getting this all taken care of and done, and saying, "All right, let's just let's get this on the books and, and go forward. We got enough things to worry about. Why would we ask for that much more paperwork to deal with for another year? What are we even doing here?" But that's what we have nonetheless here. And so you have an, again, you know, another 700, 800, 900 uh, transfers that are that are switching from one school to the other in, in college basketball. Plenty of them will ask for waivers, and I would think that uh, many of them will be denied with that. Yeah, um, I, here's a quote from uh, M. Grace Calhoun, who is the council chair, doubles as the athletic director at Penn. And it's just a quote that's it's so NCAA and frustrating. Here, here's the quote. The transfer environment has long been an issue of much discussion in Division One. The Division One Council is committed to a uniform and equitable approach to transfer rules that consider student-athlete well-being and the opportunities available after transfer. We will not simply change the rule, but we will consider a comprehensive package designed to address the multiple complexities involved, end quote. What are the multiple complexities involved? Like, how about this? If you are actually – I'll just take you at your word. If you're committed to a uniform and equitable approach to transfer rules, that's what you said. Okay, whatever the transfer rules are for soccer players right now, make them for basketball players right now. Done. I just solved it for you. What is so – like, what what are the – we have to address the multiple complexities involved. What are they? What, what, whatever you, you've already addressed them in most other sports. So what is the problem? I don't, I just don't understand it. It's just a, this is like a fancy words to kick it down the road, to delay, stall. We'll deal with it later. Like we, we're going to have to design. They always want to, they always need a year to think about something. Mm-hmm. Like what to have, what have you, what have you been doing? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, I'll make this as simple as possible. How are soccer transfers handled? Whatever the answer is to that question. Cool. Let's do that with basketball, football, baseball, men's ice hockey. Done. Move on to something else. Let's get back to uh, taking seven years to do something else. We we should have that one. We we should have that one wrapped up. It's just, it, it, the whole thing's ridiculous. Just if you're actually committed to uniform and equitable approach to transfer rules, then just apply whatever you're already doing in these other sports to the sports that are being held to a different standard, and boom, problem solved. I got nothing else for you. I mean, I, I agree. Uh, only other thing I'd add was is um, it will make behind the scenes for the upcoming season. Uh, I think it will make for very interesting tampering across the sport here when it is a guarantee that this will get voted on in January 2021, not 2001. And when that happens, uh, you'll have uh, – you know, a flood of transfers. And again, most of these guys don't matter, but it is obviously just ridiculously frustrating for a lot of these coaches to have to deal with uh, the changeover because you're basically dealing with two parallel recruiting cycles, if you will, uh, and very different things as you're constantly trying to juggle your roster. I can understand why it's a headache. I get all that. But the players, they want to be able to leave and go someplace and transfer the first time and not have to sit. I completely get that. And, you know, now we just know formally that that's not going to happen until next year. Yeah. And like, what. I understand, like, I, I, this is what I wrote. Like, I know, I, I've had enough conversations with coaches about this. I understand, the ones that have concerns, I understand their concerns. I just don't care about their concerns because um, I, I, I don't think whatever drawbacks there are to allowing transfers to transfer and play immediately, I don't think it uh, they outweigh the inherent 
unfairness of the rule. Like, well, you know, I'll have people tampering with my players. Well, like people tamper with coaches all the time. Why? why? We just accept that, man, if there's a great mid-major coach out there and this job's open, like they're going to be, you know, people getting ready to come at him. It's all like, well, good for him. Like what a great opportunity. I just don't, I've never understood why it's not a great opportunity for a mid. Nobody ever dreams of playing at Eastern Michigan. They, they dream of playing at Michigan or Michigan State. It's nobody's dream to coach in the Southern Conference. It's everybody's dream to coach in the SEC. So I don't – and this is the point I made in the column. Like, you know, Steve Forbes spent the past five seasons coaching at East Tennessee State. Let me tell you why. Because it's the best job he could get. That's why. When the, East Tennessee State offered him the job, it was the best job he could get. And then he was so successful, so good at East Tennessee State, that when an ACC job opened, they wanted to hire him. And he accepted the job very quickly after it was offered. And we all just celebrate that. Nobody goes, well, what is this doing to East Tennessee State's program? We don't care. We go, what, congrats, Steve Forbes. And we don't say, well, you better be careful, Forbes, because you know now you're coaching against Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams and – and Chris Mack and Tony Bennett, like it, you might not have as much success at that level as you had at the mid-major level. We just go, hey, man, go do it. Dream come true. So why is right. that an awesome story? And when uh, the same thing ha- would happen for a player, it would be the, the demise of college basketball. Well, GP, uh, what, what's it going to uh, – how's it going to be when East Tennessee State's leading scorer uh, gets uh, offered the opportunity to go to Tennessee and play immediately? It's going to be awesome. If he wants to do it, if it's a dream come true, knock it out. He might just decide, by the way, that he'd rather be East Tennessee State's leading scorer again as opposed to uh, the sixth man at the University of Tennessee. Like These are all things that people um, are going to have to decide for themselves, but they should have the opportunity to decide for themselves. The rule is unfair, and whatever um, – Whatever bad stuff, and again, I don't even think it's bad stuff, but like whatever bad stuff some people assume is going to happen when basketball players are held to no different standard than soccer players and and, and golfers, well, then I'm just – I'm willing to deal with it. I'm willing to deal with it because the alternative is to have a restrictive, unfair rule on the books, and it shouldn't be there. One quick thing on a transfer. Uh, I don't think we mentioned this uh, on the last podcast. I can't remember if we did or not. But no gel Eastern tr- transferred out of Purdue. Purdue unexpectedly lost Matt Harms. Where is he going? BYU. You know it, baby. And then no gel Eastern. Uh, he was like, see ya, Matt Painter. Matt Painter had a, uh, a compelling interview with Dan Dockish locally. And then within 24 hours of him announcing his transfer – uh, and being in the portal, he releases a graphic that he's going to Michigan. Um, have you like mildly kept up with this? Like Michigan hasn't acknowledged this. The family is now not speaking to it. I- I'll be interested to see if he actually winds up playing for Michigan. Like, did, did I have not dug into this? But do do we have a case here where like he committed to the school before like the school was good with it? Like, I, I don't. It's very, very interesting, very fascinating to see what's happening with the with the no-gel Eastern situation in league, announces he's leaving Purdue, transfers in league in less than 24 hours. Um, and if this was a year from now and all was good with Michigan, like bada-bing, bada-boom, I guess you're good to go there. I mean, I don't, we'll see if conferences have specific stipulations against us. I would think they shouldn't. I would be against that, but 
Um, some leagues already have such rules in place here, and we'll see if that changes with the new legislation. But the, the Eastern thing is actually kind of kind of fascinating from afar because um, it can show how a really good coach at a really good program, Eastern's a really good defender, he's a terrible shooter, um, but things can get like really get sideways in a hurry here and show you a bit of the ugliness when it comes to the transfer situations. All right, before we get out of here, uh, rough development for the Houston Cougars this week. We'll spend a few minutes on that next, but first, check this out. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So rough development for the Houston Cougars this week. I had them projected to bring back the top six scores from a team that won the AAC, finished 14th at Ken Palm, and now at best only bringing back five of the top six because Nate Hinton has announced not only is he in the NBA draft, but he is in the NBA draft for good. He's done with college basketball, even though he is unlikely to be drafted. He averaged 10.6 points, 8.7 rebounds last season. So uh, that's Houston's third leading scorer and leading rebounder off the off the roster. And listen, we don't have to spend a lot of time on Nate Hinton specifically. Um, but this is the second straight year where Kelvin Sampson's losing somebody early to the NBA draft who almost certainly isn't going to be drafted. Last year it was Armani Brooks, who, by the way, spent the past year averaging, after he went undrafted, 10.7 points per game for the College Park Skyhawks, who went 20 and 23 in the G League. Uh, last year it was Armani Brooks, enters the draft. Doesn't get drafted. G League. Now it's Nate Hinton. Enters the draft. Probably not going to get drafted. And talking to coaches over the years, these are the ones that sting. Mm-hmm. Like you like you know you're going to lose Zion Williamson after a year. Whatever. You know, how could he possibly return to school? But when you start losing players early who aren't even going to be drafted, that's – that's rough. And like, listen, I, I never blame young people can do whatever they want to do. Like, it doesn't matter to me how you decide to spend the next year, but I just don't know why, you know, all I'm doing, all I can do is project. But if my options were play on a top 10 team, be, be one of the best players on a top 10 team next year or go to the G league, I think I'd probably just rather be one of the best players on a top 10 team. So I have a little bit of intel as to why this might have happened here. Um, we happened to be talking about Nate with an agent like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And apparently, like, good player, smart kid, and apparently has, in a Zoom situation, blown away his interviews. I was told one Eastern Conference uh, assistant GM said that his interview was like a top top five he's ever had in his life, like pre-draft interview. And so apparently he knocked it out of park, knocked it out of the park when it came to that. And while he is not seen as a surefire draft pick, in fact, I'd say far from it, certainly a top 100 guy, probably a top 80 guy. I think the momentum that he felt on that end of it uh, probably inspired him to get up and go on ahead and do it. Uh, you could say... 
Well, he might have also done it, and others might do it because what certainty you have with the college basketball season. To that, I would say you have as much certainty there as you might have with the NBA or the or the G League or any of this stuff. No one really knows what situation we're going to be at in November or January or February in general. So I don't think you can use that against college basketball so much as we don't really know what the global situation with the sport's going to be five, seven, nine months from now. Um, it does sting for Kelvin Sampson, who's accomplished in his own right. Trivia time! Okay. Oh, wow. You don't sound enthused at all. You were just I, like, okay. You're like, whatever. Hit me. I got. Okay. <laughs> been a rough morning, GP, has it? It's been a rough year. It's been a rough year. I, I had the dumbest <laughs> conversation with my wife last night. Listen to how dumb this is. So she, like, I, I just was, I just put my head on my desk. I was so, I, I, she calls me. She says, hey, I'm about to stop by this place, pick up the kids' dinner. Do you want me to grab you something? I said, yeah, just give me that salad I usually get. This is a place right by our home. We go there often. I get the same thing every time. I said, yeah, just give me that salad I usually get. She said, okay, boom, in the conversation. She gets home, and uh, you know, I go downstairs, and I'm like, well, where's my salad? And she said, it's right there. And it's just not my salad. I've never had this salad in my life. I said, <laughs> I said Kelly, I said, Kelly, what, what is – why did you get me this? I said, I told you to get me the salad I always get. And she said, well, yeah, I got you the salad I always get. I was like, no, you got me the salad you always get. I said, get me the salad I always get. She's like, yeah, I got you the salad I always get. I was like, are you messing with me right now? <laughs> like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way you don't understand the difference between me saying get me the salad I always get and you just saying out loud, I'm going to get the salad I always get. Like the salad you always get is not the salad I always get. She's like, I got you the salad I always get. I said, I can't even talk about this anymore. I got to go. Like I'm going to end up in a fight with you. This is the – I said, Kelly, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is the dumbest conversation I've ever heard. And I think our brain – she was like – finally she acknowledged. She's like, maybe I just thought about it backwards or something. But like I think my – I think our brains are fried. I think it's over with. That's bad. By the way, don't thought about the, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about the, I don't know why I was thinking about I was literally thinking about this while I was playing with my kids in the yard because the brain just wanders. I don't even know why I thought about it. I don't know if I've ever ever eaten a salad and I've had some good but I don't know if I've ever eaten a salad and thought that was 100% satisfactory. I think we just well, do it against our better impulses here, right? Like, I don't know if I've ever sat down, and I've had some really good Caesar salads, but I don't know if I've ever eaten a salad and said, you know what, that 100% hit the spot. You know what? There is a salad at Backyard Burger. It's got, like, pecans and cranberries and blue cheese sprinkles, and I take it and I put honey mustard on it, and it is awesome. It's a great salad. Like, I can't recommend it enough. So here's the thing. Salads are tricky because it sounds like, oh, I just had a salad. But like if it's if it's the wrong kind of salad, you ain't really accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish. No. So like like taco salad is a salad. Taco salad is not salad though. <laughs> Let's be real here. But but you like you, don't act like you're being healthy. Oh yeah, I just had a salad for dinner. Taco salad? That's yeah. you're not no. you're not doing what you think. So I would go, there was a backyard burger by my radio studio. There still is. And I would go there every day. Like before radio, and I'd be like, "Oh, I'm eating healthy. I'm having a salad for lunch," and I'd get the salad every day, and I'd dump honey mustard all yeah, over it. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah, it was great. And then finally one day, I was like, I-, "I should look that up and like see if it is actually better." 
I found that I'd be better off actually going to Backyard Burger every day and getting a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, this salad is so bad for you, but it's satisfying. I love it. I do love it. That was a heck of a wild turn there. By the way, I did have a trivia time there. Okay, Pelican yeah, Samson. trivia time. All right, this is just a quick so, – so everyone that's listening Thursday or for listening Friday, on Friday I just, I, I've been musing on things we want to write about, and I thought how many current coaches – how many, how many like, programs right now are currently coached by the best coach in that school's history? So obviously like right now Duke – is obviously coached by its best coach in school history. Gonzaga is another uh, instance of that. So be on the lookout for that. But in in Syracuse, oh uh, maybe yeah. Um, but yes, obviously there were actually a couple of close. There were a couple of close calls. I will. I'll tease one. Saint uh, John's. Yeah, I, I go, had. Go get, I, go get Mike. I had. I had a tough time. Uh, you know, I really struggled with UCLA. I gotta admit. It oh was, yeah, the, 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 I would have put that. You let me do that list. I would a hundred percent put you put me. No B no BS for about fourteen point six four seven seconds. I thought, should I just put Mick Cronin and UCLA into this to see if our editor catches it, and then if it publishes, <laughs> like how many people lose their absolute minds? If I knew that ninety nine percent of the readership would be the, the podcast, I'd put it in there. Anyway, um, there were a lot. There were actually a lot of uh, close calls there. One of them, Bruce Pearl, did not make the list. Shouts to Joel Eaves, who our editor Marcus Nelson said uh, before it became uh, Jared Harper Arena, uh, the arena was actually at Auburn was named after Joel Eaves, who. Uh, who won 68% of his games and still uh, is the all-time winningest coach there. But anyway, here's the trivia time because we were talking about Houston and Kelvin Sampson. There are 18 coaches who are active that have won at least 600 games. Kelvin Sampson is one of them. I don't, I'm not going to ask you to name all 18, but if you are listening to the podcast and you want to challenge yourself, pause it right now, see how many you can get. Parrish, can you name me – I'll give you 15 guesses to get 12 of the coaches – 12 of the 18, you get 15 guesses that have at least 600 wins, and they're active right now. Go. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski. Yes. Roy Williams. Yes. Uh, Jim Beheim. Yes. Uh, Rick Pitino. Yes. Uh, Bob Huggins. Yes. Is Bob McKillop up there? Bob McKillop is not there. He is less than 15 wins away. So you okay. got, you got I, two, I, two I, more misses. I knew he was up there pretty good. I need to see just like a list of schools. Uh, of course you do. Well, I, I forget what schools exist. Well, this is a way that this – I well, <laughs> I would prefer you did oh, not uh, cheat and look at the school list because that will probably trigger you, but go ahead. Uh, is Tom Izzo on the list? Tom Izzo is on the list. You are halfway there. Okay. Is – I want to say Leonard Hamilton. Leonard Hamilton is – not on the list. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> that's a shame. Is you got one more six, miss. 600's a big number. Is John Calipari there yet? John Calipari is on the list. Is Mark Few there yet? Mark Few is not there. Mark Few sits at 599 wins. Coronavirus. That's a hell that's, of a deal. So that's your third miss there. I think you're at seven or eight right now. And you've used can all I, your misses. Can I get can I get a Lon Kruger? How about you? There we go. Correct. Um, can I get a I think you're right. Hold on, let me let you show you done. Shushevsky, Bayheim, Roy, Huggins, Cal is five. You got Patino is six, Kruger is seven. So you have seven right now. Uh, I want to see if you can get five more. Is Bill Self on there? He is on the list. Yeah. Okay. There's a oh. sneaky there. 
there is one who is so easily on the list that I know you're not going to get, and there's another who's I did I would I would have never guessed this guy has at least 600 wins, but he does. And there's a couple he, more obvious ones. Well, who am I leaving off a Hall of Famer? Yes. Uh, so, are you leaving off a Hall of Famer? No. Okay. Sorry. Uh, can I get a Jim Laranega? That is correct, and that's the one that I would have never guessed. Laranega has 600 plus. Right. So um, you've got Shashevsky, Bayheim, Roy is three, Huggins is four, Cal is five, Self is six, Patino seven, Laranega is eight, Kruger's nine. Sampson will count at 10. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six more here. So, yeah, there's six. There's 16. I think I said 18 to start with. There, there are 16. Can I get a Greg Marshall? Greg Marshall is not on the list. He should be. Greg Marshall is at, I'll tell you right now. I'm going to guess right now. I'm going to guess Greg Marshall right now is at 558. Let me see how much. Greg Marshall right now has one. Oh, I got one. 522. I got one. Yep. Uh, Rick Barnes. Correct. Okay. Rick Barnes is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to try and get them all? There's one you oh, will. Oh, 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 I got one. Okay. He's off my radar. There's a couple off the radar. Tubby Smith. Correct. Correct. Uh, you fulfilled it. You're missing one, two, three. Four. You're missing four, and one of them currently coaches in a power conference. Huh. Not what one of them. Not only co- the one that coaches in a power conference. Uh, not only does that, he is he is he makes my story because he's the best coach at his current school now in the history of that school, and he is also the best coach at another school in the history of that program too. Okay, are we counting Jim Calhoun as active? No, I did not count because I Division One. Yeah, so but that would that fair fair enough. But no, I did not count Jim Calhoun. Did I already say Bob Huggins? You did. If you didn't, I gave you credit for it. But I'm okay. pretty sure you said it. Is Dana Altman up there? That is the answer. He is the best coach in the history of Creighton and Oregon's men's basketball. Pretty crazy, right? Dana Altman is up there, and Dana Altman is sneaky, sixty-one years old. The other three. Yeah, I think I'm out of names. Yeah. Okay. One, okay, we'll do the last three here. One of them is the third longest tenured coach in men's division one. The longest tenured is Bayheim at, at uh Syracuse. K is the second longest, and this is the third longest. Based in Michigan. Based in We've Michigan. both written stories on him. Very fun. Greg, Cam- Greg Campy. Correct. Greg Campy. Okay. Yep. Two more. Uh, how do I want to? T- okay. The uh, one of them is. I mean, he's like he's like fifteenth on the all-time win list, but he's just been at a small school for for a long time now that he's off the radar. But he is he has been a head coach. He's acted in the head coach capacity every year. Since 69, nice. And he's been a Division One head coach every year since 75. I'm pretty sure he was Horace Grant's college coach. I don't know. Cliff Ellis. Oh, God, yes, Cliff Ellis. Cliff course. Ellis, man, OG right there. And then the last one, 
is I want you to get this. So he's not in a power conference now. He was recently, and he actually had because of where he used to coach and who he played for, he has connections to two of the three greatest coaches in men's basketball history. So it's got to be somebody connected to Bob Knight? Mm. Who is connected to Bob Knight? Mm. Uh, this is when the listeners are just screaming at their phones right now. I. Mm. Okay, so we're saying he's connected to Bob Knight and Mike Krzyzewski? No, not Krzyzewski. No. Where, because of where he used to coach, there's a connection to another legendary coach. I couldn't believe he had – I guess I can believe it, but I was surprised to see he had, had actually eclipsed 600 wins. Mm. Love a good trivia time. I'm, a, I'm out. Wow. I think I'm out of names. Wow. Come on, man. I Who are I'm some of, of Bob Knight's most famous players? Oh, Steve Alford? There we go. Steve Alford's got 600 wins? <laughs> yes. I would have never guessed that. Uh, neither would I, but I was surprised to discover it. Steve Alford sits at – coach of Nevada, obviously, now. Steve Alford sits at – bring it up real quick here. Um, Steve Alford has, in his career, he has 606 wins. The three coaches knocking on the door, uh, Jay Wright, Mark Few, and Bob McKillop, next season will all eclipse that mark, barring something drastic. So there we uh, there we have it. We were talking about Houston and, and Nate Hinton and all that. Yeah, way. I guess I, I guess I'd bottom line it with this. Yep. Um I could probably jump on a Zoom call with an NBA team and knock the interview out as well. <laughs> no, well <laughs> I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I'm you can understand why that might have played a factor in that. And I do – it's it's a stinger for Sampson, and that just kind of ties into what I wrote about in that. He's had a – people acknowledge Sampson as a really good coach. In fact, I, I think a A-level kind of coach in the game. But this is a stinger two years in a row for him. Yes, it, it, great coach. And listen, I've still got Houston in the top ten. They're still bringing back five. Do you really? Top Yes, five of the top six scores back from a team that finished top 15 at Kimpa. All right, so he's the only one of, of consequence that's not coming back then. Well, at this moment. Yeah. You know, they, they, okay. they could lose another one, but yeah. I'm, you know, I'm projecting them right now, five of the top six to come back. If, if it doesn't work out that way, I'll adjust. I've already done 15 different <laughs> top 25 ones. I'm on version 15.0. If it's, I have to adjust again, I'll adjust again. Yeah. But uh, I got Houston, I think, still ninth in the country in the preseason. Are we done here? I got to go. I know. You got to go. I got things to do. I know. You got to go. Yeah, we can can wrap it up. I wanted to get into thought like uh, we had not talked. I think we're the only basketball-oriented podcast that has not yet talked about the last dance, but that's okay. Um, We don't don't have time on that, but I did enjoy that. But, yeah, give the shouts. I know you got to do stuff, and we'll be back next week. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. Please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments. We'll talk to you again soon. Till then, take care.